This is Talkin' Mule Deer with your hosts, Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. Talkin' Mule Deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Deer and Blacktail Deer Biology and Management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start talking Mule Deer. Hello, this is Jody Stemmler. I'm at the 2019 SHOT Show with Steve. Hi, how are you, Jody? Doing just fine, and we have a very, very special guest here today that was kind of a, a surprise walk by, and we grabbed him, and very, very honored to have Jim Zumbo with us today. Jim, how are you? It's, I'm doing fine. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, now we asked, uh, we asked a, uh, an, another guest earlier that uh, how long they've been here, and that was 20 years, but I'm guessing how many SHOT shows have you been to? <laughs> this is 41, and I missed two. That's pretty well. You missed one for your heart attack a couple of years ago, right? Yep. And the other was the very first one in St. Louis when no one knew what the shot show really. It was just in, in its infancy. So, anyways, yeah. So that's amazing. Well, yeah. certainly a person that uh, anybody who cares about hunting and fishing and hunting in the West would know the Jim Zumbo name. They may not know Jim though that you grew up in the East. I did. I grew up in Newburgh, New York, which is 60 miles north of New York City. I was basically raised a city kid. And uh, started hunting with my grandfather, my dad, uncles. We were chasing rabbits with beagle hounds when I was a little guy. And I did that, too. Did yeah, you? I did, yeah. too. Oh, yeah, we fun. had beagles growing up. We had two yeah. or three in the backyard all the time. It was a great time yes. of year. Great fun. Yeah. Yeah. My grandmother would be home with a, I come from an Italian family, with a big pot of tomato sauce waiting for the rabbits. <laughs> Yum. So rabbit cacciatore was on the menu. Oh. <laughs> So, Jim, yeah. you've been doing this now. Uh, we were just talking, and I won't put out the number, but uh, longer than a lot of us that are in the business have been alive. Um, <laughs> how did you get from upstate New York to Wapiti, Wyoming? Oh, golly. Well, act, let's see. I went to Paul Smith College first, which is up in northern New York in the Adirondacks. I got a two-year forestry degree there, and I always wanted to be a cowboy. When Who I grew up, I was living in the city, and I watched Roy Rogers and Hopalong Cassidy and Gene Autry. And so anyway, I realized my dream. After I got my associate degree at Paul Smith's, I went out to Utah State and got my bachelor's. Mm-hmm. They've got an excellent and program. Yeah. Yep. Fell in love with the West, as I knew I would, and worked there for a couple of years for the state forestry department. In Utah? In Utah. And then found out about a job through my dad at West Point at the military academy that there was a job open for a forester game warden. And that was where I was born and raised, right next to West right. Point. So I thought, well, I'll go home. At the time, I was married with two kids, one one child. And so moved back to West Point, worked there for eight years as a forester, game warden, jack of all trades if it had to do with a snake or a woodchuck or a raccoon in the wrong place. <laughs> and ran the hunting program, fishing program. Because and, West uh, Point is uh, has pr- it's fairly large acreage. West Point right? has 16,000 beautiful acres on the Hudson. Yeah. And a lot of that's prime whitetail country and, and uh, great fishing. So I did that, and then I uh, kept, kept wanting to come back out west. So I was at West Point for eight years, then went back to Utah as a wildlife biologist for the BLM. And uh, it was there that I got a job offer from Outdoor Life in 78 to go full-time. And and yet, yes, you, you told us earlier that you wrote your first article for Outdoor Life in 1966. 1966. That? That's amazing. Yep, sure did. That, that. So, Jim, I, I can, uh, I spent quite a few years as a biologist with the BLM and Forest Service, too. Um, 
you know, you sort of got the reputation of making those book cliffs down there pretty famous. Uh, tell us about that. What was it like in the early days down there? Well, you know, I was back in the banner days of the mule deer. Um, I first started hunting them in about 63 or 64, and there were big bucks everywhere. It was amazing. Uh, Colorado, Utah, Montana. And uh, I was a biologist uh, in Vernal, Utah. Book Cliffs was part of my region. So I kind of got to know that area. And um, that's where I hunted. I, you know, take my vacation time and hunt deer out there. And But things changed fairly rapidly. I remember one day I went out to go to my favorite spot. It was still dark. And I was in some oak brush. And I came around a bend, and there was an oil rig sitting there. Mm. And that was kind of the beginning of the 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 road the new road system in the book cliffs they punch roads down every canyon and every ridge you know and, and uh so allowed a lot more access to where those big bucks were and eventually it became all limited entry so now if you want to hunt the book cliffs you've got to draw a tag we've seen that change in other places too you know i spent yep. quite a bit of time in pinedale there as a biologist and uh yep you know you look at what that uh, quality for big bucks was a lot mm -hmm. of it was due to the inaccessible nature of the of the areas that if you wanted to go get those bucks you had to walk for them exactly and as you probably know some of the the biggest bucks in wyoming are in the wyoming range yeah. grace river and in, uh, in that country and it's essentially a wilderness hunt it's not wilderness yeah, per se a lot of yeah. that but still you have to leave that truck a long ways behind and do a lot of climbing horseback riding is best way but that's where our biggest bucks come from that yeah area. because yeah. they because they get to be five or six years old you know and i that's was over there takes. during migration this year november and i'll were tell you? you what yeah there was you know we, we've seen a downturn uh from the winter of a couple of years ago but uh boy there's still some quality bucks coming off that yeah. range so. yeah there sure are yeah. um so book cliffs you when, when did you move to wyoming 1985 1985 to wapiti wapiti Okay, so for folks who don't know what Wapiti is, Wapiti is a, a small town west of Cody, Wyoming, yep. which um, was somewhat infamous over the last uh, uh, electoral cycle because they actually have a fence around our school. their school t because it's right in smack dab in the middle of grizzly bear country. And That's so when you go through Wapiti, if you know where the school's at right after you cross the bridge, the North Fork of the Shoshone River, you can look to your right and see what all the the uh the fuss is all about there's actually one down on the south fork you know in that old schoolhouse yep. down there on the yep. south fork of the shoshone too but yeah um, well people will say, will often say how did you end up in wapiti because elk was kind of your forte you know um but i just happened to move there wapiti does mean elk we have our own post office we have our own zip code <laughs> so but you blink once or twice and you're through, <laughs> and you're through. <laughs> So tell us a little bit. Give us give us a classic Zumbo story. Give us a story about one of your most um, either treasured hunts or wildest experience. Um, let's start with a mule deer hunt. Well, I'll tell you an interesting story. People often ask, "What's your what's your most memorable hunt?" And you know, I've been writing for fifty years and being hunting editor for outdoor life. I hunted for a living, and if I had to look at all of them. I think that probably one of the most special was with my daughter Jeanette. I've got three girls and a boy and uh, Danny was second oldest. Jeanette was the oldest. And coming from the old family that I did back east, women didn't hunt 
weren't expected to hunt, weren't, didn't ever touch a gun, and that's kind of how I was raised. And that's sort of how I raised Dan and Jeanette. They were the two oldest, and I always took Danny hunting when he was 10. He got a BB gun, and he got a 22 and a shotgun and a rifle. He was 18 months younger than Jeanette, but uh, so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, she never said anything. I didn't think that she wanted to participate in hunting, but she came home from college one time and she was all upset. She says, my boyfriend won't take me hunting. <laughs> she said, he's going with his brother and his dad. And I said, wait a minute, you want to go hunting? Why is that? <laughs> she said, I've always wanted to go hunting, dad, but you never asked me. Oh. So, <laughs> so I felt about that big. Uh-oh. And I said, all right. So deer season was about to start. So we grabbed my 30 out six, went out to the range, and she shot it a couple of times, shot it very well. And we, then we went to the book cliffs with my next oldest daughter, Judy. The three of us went down there, and Judy spotted a buck, little fork at horn. And long story short, Jeanette got down on a branch and, and got the buck. Nice. And I thought, holy smokes, of all the years I've wasted, you know, not yeah. thinking that she she would be interested in hunting but at any rate it was uh i wrote that story called the buck for Jeanette, and uh i wrote it from the heart i didn't think it was that great of a story but it just you know it it, it kind of illustrated you know what can happen when you when you ignore your kids you know or, or but anyway, my boss, the editor of Outdoor Life, unbeknown to me, submitted it to a, a bunch of writing contests with OWAA, and it won six first prizes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So not only did I learn a, a real good lesson, you know, as far as uh, not taking the kids out, but I made some money. <laughs> That's prizes. always good, too. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of the thing, you know, and it was it was pretty emotional when she got that deer. I bet it was. She said, Dad, what's wrong with your eyes? I said, oh, something blew in it. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> So, Jim, have you ever had a story that you felt you wanted to tell but haven't been able to get it out there? Uh, uh, one that was rejected or one you couldn't write or, you know. You know, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I had a buddy back in New York. His name was Louie. And uh, we were inseparable. We were kids. You know, we were Boy Scouts together. And and we double dated and we, <laughs> we, hunted, we hunted and fished constantly. I mean, that's all we did. And uh, at any rate, uh, he was killed in a tragic accident and i always wanted to write a story called goodbye louie but i never i couldn't do it That'd to this pretty, day pretty emotional <laughs> yeah to this day yeah and that was 35 40 years ago when it happened but uh so anyway stay in touch with his kids and stuff that's so, good yeah that's yeah. good so from a person who uh has probably hunted have you ever hunted every continent have you are no. you know you're mainly north american only yeah, no, I've hunted uh, Africa, South America, Europe, and uh, I have hunted all 50 states for deer. Okay. Successfully? No. Oh. No, I didn't get that idea. I was taking a shower one day, and I thought, you know what, because being a hunting editor for Outdoor Life, you've got to write a column every month plus half a dozen features a year, and you need ideas. So I thought, maybe I'll try this quest, this odyssey to hunt a deer in every state, and I was probably 55 when I decided to do that and I think I had maybe half of the states so I'd go out in my pickup truck and say bye to my wife and be gone for 25 30 days and try to get three <laughs> or four states that were adjoining each other you know yeah. and, and uh, so the deal was I hunted three days in each state and and I got that done finally North Dakota was my last state oh. so, yeah. so she went with you to Hawaii right 
She did. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I went with Tony Knight, the late Tony Knight, who was the inventor of the uh, inline muzzleloader. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tony and I and our wives went, and we hunted axis deer there, which have been in Hawaii since uh, 1880s. Oh, wow. We hunted on Molokai Island, where the lepers live, okay. by the way. Huh. So, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting random fact. <laughs> Well, that's yeah. that's amazing. So uh, let let's do it. Which which state's your favorite to hunt? Where I live, Wyoming. Wyoming. Yeah. Imagine. Yeah, we have we have great hunting. Um, one of the reasons I moved to Wyoming was because when I was living in Utah prior to that, you know, I'd have to draw a non-resident tag, which often wasn't successful. So I figured I'll beat those guys and I'll move there. And now I can just go to Walmart or game department and buy my general license. You know, even during the season. So. Do that for deer and elk, not for antelope. We still have to draw for antelope. Right. But well, and we were talking before we uh, hit record on this that Wyoming and some of our other western states right now have seen a huge increase in folks wanting to come hunt. Um, what has that led to? Have you seen any changes where you go, or or is it getting harder to draw uh, for pronghorn and other species? Or um, Pronghorn has always been fairly difficult to draw. It all depends on where you go. In yeah. eastern Wyoming on the big ranches, there's actually pronghorn tags for sale across the counter for bucks even during the season. But as far as mule deer go, um, the biologists have cut back on the non-resident quota in Region F where I live. I think they went from 12,000 non-residents to 7,000 non-residents. Mm -hmm. And that's because the, de the decline in mule deer We've had some pretty serious bad winters, yeah. and we lost a lot of deer three years ago. And in fact, this year in our unit, in our region, it was four-pointer better than it used to be any buck. So as you know, Wyoming has a unique, we micromanage our animals. You know, we've got like 110 deer units, and the same with animal, same with elk. Every unit has a herd management objective. And like the game department might say, okay, in unit 12, we want 1,200 deer. So they, they design the seasons and the quotas to achieve that objective. So I live in 111, for example. The South Fork is 112. Everything's different. Okay. Even opening dates are different. Uh, and then you can also take does. Uh, you can take four does in Wyoming. Pretty much whitetails, though. Yeah, they, they quit giving mule deer does this year oh. where I live for a while just to try to get that herd to bounce back. Well, the one thing I've noticed, Jim, is is because of the Internet and because of new online mapping applications and the ability to have access to uh, information that we didn't have a long time ago is, is we're seeing a lot of people apply for units in Wyoming that aren't very good hunting or extremely inaccessible and they show up with this expectation that they're going to be you know it's going to be easy or there's going to be a lot of animals but like between where you live and i live there's some of the roughest country oh, no out doubt. there and there's tags and i don't know how you get in you, and out of that country talking about more. sunlight basin yeah. and all that country yeah that's true you know a lot of folks that have never hunted mule deer before just really don't know what to expect uh especially when they look at the antler structure, you know, a lot of folks come from back east and, you know, a big whitetail might be 14 inches across. They see a mule deer that's 18 or 19 inches, it's like, wow. And then they're sorry after yeah. because they've seen a bunch of bigger ones. Well, yeah, particularly if they went out right now on the North Fork of the South Fork and saw all those yeah. wintering animals, you know, they'd be like, yeah. oh, wow. Yeah. 
We we do have a we live in the most classic mule deer range I've ever seen. I live at 6,300 feet uh, on the mountain, and those mule deer leave every one of them, except for maybe a dozen. I swear, in the whole valley, every one of them is gone by around June 5th. They go up to the high country and yeah. they have their fawns and they stay there, and they start coming down in early October. You will not see a mule deer in Wapiti Valley in the summer. Hmm. Maybe occasionally, but they're gone. They're just like yeah. some kind of a signal went off. So then they come back down in October. And uh, if you know where the migration routes are, then it's all basically public land, Shoshone National Forest, then you're kind of in the catbird seat. Yeah. And uh, I took my grandson hunting this fall. He lives in Utah. And uh, it was warm. It was the beginning of the season. Very few bucks showing up. We walked up a canyon a mile. And uh, there was a migration trail. I knew where it was. And we were standing there. There were four of us. And I'll be darned if there wasn't a mule deer buck standing in the middle of that migration <laughs> trail, just kind of walking down. I said, holy smokes. He, anyway, he got it. It was a nice five by six. But, but Well, we, you know, uh, speaking of migrations, we've recently talked to Matt Kaufman and his team there at University of Wyoming. Right. Um, but looking at some of the data, I mean, we, we we're seeing animals come from – around Yellowstone Lake, the whole way yeah. down to Buffalo Bill Reservoir now. that yep. I think there were probably a few people that knew about that before, but now it's really coming to light how those long-distance migrations function and how far these animals really That's go. That's true. I, I heard of some deer going like 93 miles or something. Well, they have one that goes, what, 200, 200 miles. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah the, the, that it was 150 was the first, and then they just found another doe that goes an additional 90 miles Holy beyond smoke. that. So she goes from Island Park, Idaho to Rock Springs at the interstate. No way, really? Yeah. Yep, and has done it wow. multiple years. They So it's not just an offset one year. So yeah. it, it is amazing what they're learning about this, considering, yeah. you know, as, as you know, you've hunted and, and seen patterns and you get to know it, but now that they're actually documenting it scientifically and understanding the implications over time for um, for mule deer conservation, our ability to manage herds and, sure. and hopefully maintain, it's, it, it's a good thing to see what's going on. Yep. So what would be your uh, your biggest tip or tactic that you could share or suggest to, to people who are who are avid mule deer hunters right now that you've learned over your years of hunting? Well, you know, we're pretty lucky in the West because we've got National Forest and BLM all over the place. We never have an access problem. You know, unlike back east in Texas, you know, where 97% of the land is private. Um, having said that, um, some of the best units are limited entry units where you need preference points. Right. And I'm a big believer in preference points. I've, uh, I had 12 in Colorado two years ago and finally drew it, got one of the best bucks ever. And I've had 22 in Montana for sheep and got a sheep. But, but by allowing those preference points to build, you know, you increase your odds of drawing the tag in some of those special units where truly, you know, there's uh well, the reason they're special is because hunter numbers are limited. Mm -hmm. And by doing so, deer have a chance to grow a few more years and, you know, have more quality hunting, bigger bucks. So I think that the, the whole aspect of putting in for the, the uh, preference points. And if you live in a state that has bonus points, it's the same difference. You know, yeah. except bonus points, as you know, is just all that many more applications in the hopper. But, um, and, you know, I think a lot of people believe that mule deer have to be way up in the higher elevations i've seen some of the biggest bucks down in the pinion junipers mm -hmm. and in the oak brush i'm sure you both have so it's uh 
it's a matter of where deer will feel safe from hunters and you know getting in into yeah. those nooks and crannies and I've, I've hunted the uh, Grays River many times and there's a major trail on the top of Commissary Ridge and all the outfitters and hunters take their horses on that trail but they don't venture on the side canyons yeah you know and those deer are laying there watching them go by <laughs> so if you get out of the, the beaten track you know and just look into those other obscure areas your chances are better of seeing a good buck so, Jim, a half century in the outdoor profession, what's the biggest change you've seen? Both positive and negative. How about oh, that? Oh, boy. Well, you know, there's, in terms of technology, there's so many more ways to increase your odds in hunting with trail cams. Uh, for example, you know, folks have trail cams in real time where you can actually see what's going on in your backyard or up on the mountain or whatever. Uh, and uh, as far as firearms and bows, there's lots of advances. Uh, Long-range shooting is a big deal now. Mm -hmm. In fact, both companies are in Cody, where I live, uh, both major companies. Um, so, And that's viewed differently by different people. You know, some people are in favor and some aren't. Um, but hunting is really, I think it's it's departing from the old traditional old school ways and uh into more of a, a modern aspect but it's still hunting you know and it's uh it's a great opportunity for folks to get out and, and i'm especially pleased as far as new things with the number of women that are hunting nowadays because mm -hmm. the numbers are really increasing I'm, i forget what the percentages are but uh and that's good uh because uh Hunting is just kind of an empowering thing. It's almost spiritual. I do a lot of stuff with wounded warriors. I've taken lots of folks out that were Purple Hearts, and, and uh, it's amazing how hunting kind of brings them around and gives them a whole new attitude on life, you know. So I don't know if I answered yeah, your question. That's no, therapy. That's well, that's I mean, you did. I, the long-range stuff, you start getting into that fair chase argument, and... Um, one of the things I've seen, and of course we've been living it in uh, Wyoming for quite a few years, but now uh, because it's getting into around the elk feed grounds in the park is is the spread of chronic wasting disease yep. and how that's going to change things. I think that's probably flying under a lot of folks' radar, the average hunter, how that's going to change big game hunting. I mean, the quarantine on moving animals is going to be create a convenience issue that uh, I know I have, I've talked to folks uh, in my small community of Red Lodge and basically say, you know what, I'm just going to quit hunting if it gets too inconvenient for me. That's true. You make that point about CWD, though, which with, I had an interesting, uh, uh, this year, the place I hunt elk, a guy killed a bull and it tested positive. And um, I was going hunting on another nearby ranch, and this woman... Um, gave me permission to hunt and she says I got to tell you two weeks ago somebody killed a nice healthy doe on my property and it tested positive and I personally got three does there and uh, I was concerned I had them all tested I took them mm -hmm. all to the game and fish and they took the, the you know the, the, the tissue out, out. Yeah, yeah. but I waited I do all my own processing I got all my tools and you know my my grinders and my my all my stuff and i waited and uh didn't eat those deer or process them until i found out what the what the results were so cwd is here and it's here to stay it's, yeah. it's scary 
Absolutely. So. Well, Jim, we appreciate your time. I know you're still, you are active on social media. Yep. Um, and you have some other uh, adventures, Jim Zumbo's Everything Outdoors. Um, tell us a little bit, if people are interested in, in reconnecting and, and reading some of the Jim Zumbo stories from old or from new, tell us, okay. let them know how they well, can find I, it. I do write a blog, and you can go to jimzumbo.com, and uh, it's, it's available to anybody that just types that in. And I write the inside back page for Peterson's Hunting, which is kind of a fun deal. It's kind mm -hmm. of old school. Yep. And uh, just write about stuff that's happened over the years. And I write for the NRA. I write a couple of blogs for them. But uh, other than that, I'm just kind of enjoying retirement life, <laughs> splitting a lot of firewood, <laughs> hunting and fishing. And I love to fish. I probably I probably fish as much as I hunt. I just I just love it. So. Especially up in your neck of the woods. Yeah, in Red well, Lodge. and I come down and fish in front of your house. There you there go. You see, we'll have to get together one of these. <laughs> yeah, times, yeah, yeah, for so. sure. Well, Jim, thank you so much. And, and for anybody who uh, who knows Jim Zumbo, um, we actually had to put a set of headphones on him. And so he's not wearing his iconic <laughs> black hat. So he's probably, we've probably not been interrupted here just because he doesn't look like his iconic self yeah. without uh, that black hat. But, uh, but Jim, it is truly an honor to have somebody um, who has had such a tremendous impact on Western hunting, um, on the outdoor industry somebody who I've called a friend for a long time and, 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 and have always thought so highly of. So thank you so much for carving out a little bit of your time in this very busy week to spend with us. Thank well, you. Thank you, Jody. And thank you, Steve. It's yeah, Jim, we, we look forward to uh, many more years of your uh, benefits to conservation, and we thank you for everything you've done to date. So well, thanks very much. Good to be here. And for now, this is Jody Stemler. And I'm Steve Belinda. Until we talk to you next time, thank you for talking mule deer. Thanks for talking mule deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters in access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org and stay tuned for the next episode of Talking Mule Deer.